Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dual Access Podcast, your home for conversations with leaders in data. Thanks for coming back. I'm your host, Andy Kriebel. Today's guest is Alberto Cairo. He's an expert in the field of data visualization, and he's been an inspiration to me since I first got to know him in 2012, and his book showed up at my house for some reason, but that was pretty cool. Uh, few people understand how to combine beauty and functionality better than Alberto. He's a journalist and designer and the Knight Chair of Visual Journalism at the School of Communication at the University of Miami, and he's the author of four books, all of which are fantastic and I would highly recommend you buy. I will put a link to those in the show notes as well. In this episode, we're going to uh, take a deep dive into his career as a journalist, how that led him into the field of visual communication, why he's so passionate about effective communication, why charts lie, and a lot more. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode, especially if you want to learn more about how you can communicate more effectively with data. Thank you for lending my ears. I appreciate you making the time to listen to the Dual Access podcast. Welcome, Alberto. Hi, Andy. It's good to see you again. You too. It's been it's been too long. It's been too oh, long. Yeah, way too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that book back in in 2012. By the way, it was it was a, it was a great surprise. I read it the cover cover to cover in, in just a couple of days, and I was like, wow, this is pretty transformational to the stuff that I thought I knew. And, a decade, and it really, it's, a, it's a decade already. <laughs> it's been, Time it's been, flies by. That's true. It has been a decade, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. It's been a decade. I, yeah. I, it seems like it was just the other day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess Absolutely. that's good. And since that book, you've then written, is it two more or three more since then? I, I wrote the, the Truthful Art, which was published in 2016. I wrote a How Chats Lie, which was published in 2019. Right. And in between, I finished writing my PhD dissertation, which is titled Nerd Journalism, which is about the development of data visualization and information graphics in the news. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, on a new one, uh, The Art of Insight, which hopefully will appear, uh, will, be, will be launched in 2023. So, yeah. It's been a, a, a very busy decade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really look forward to. It. I look forward to reading every one of them. They're all they're all fantastic. Why do you write? Do you just enjoy doing it, or is it to share with no, others? No, it, it's months? not something. No, it's not something that, that I particularly enjoy doing. <laughs> uh, rather than writing, I would, I would, you know, I would, I would rather spend my time with my children. You know, talking to you or another yeah. friends. Uh, Playing tabletop games, which is one of my passions, drawing, uh, sketching, that's something. So why do I write? Well, I write for several reasons. The first one is that, um, to me, writing is very similar to data visualization or or to information graphics. It's not just a way to communicate to other people. It's a way to think better. So there's no way, no better way to understand something well uh, than trying to teach it to other people. Right, you only agree. know that you understand something well if you can explain it to others. But in the process of doing that, you need to organize your classes. Or so in the case in a, of a book, you need to organize your thoughts in a way that is coherent and understandable by other people. And that forces you to think deeply about these issues. So yeah. I, I wrote the functional art originally because I wanted to understand myself a little bit better. Um, the way that I was doing things, I wanted to to sort of like do a, this mindful exercise, trying to find an explanation and then put it out to others. But then at the same time, you know, I think that it connects also with with my with my career. So the reason why I am a journalist is not that it's not that I you know I like to serve the public or any of these you know super you know high you know ethical mandates that we journalists like to put it out, or we want to serve the public and inform the public. That is all true. I like to do that. But the fact is that I have always liked to learn stuff, Mm -hmm. summarize stuff, and then explain that stuff to others, right? Things that I feel enthusiastic about, things that I feel interested about. So writing books is sort of like a natural extension of that natural drive that I was born with. So there's nothing particularly special or anything. It's just something that I do naturally. But again, if I could do other things rather than other than writing, I think that I would spend my time doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you, you also get into a, a contract with a publisher and you, you agree to it. Yeah, yeah, you agree yeah. to do something and that you need to you need to meet that. You need to meet that deadline and you need to fulfill your duties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember when when even I wrote uh, the Makeover Monday book, we had to write the whole thing in seven months, I think. 
mm-hmm, which uh, mm-hmm. which felt like quite the sprint. Uh, but it, yeah. but it was yeah. good. I, we really in, I enjoyed the process, and it's kind of like one of those um, bucket list things where you can tick off that you mm-hmm. wrote a book. Um, mm-hmm. So you made an interesting comment there. You talked about how the best way to 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 make sure you understand something is to teach it to others or to write about it. I'm a firm believer in that as well. That's why I started my blog in the first place was, okay, I, first off, I want to remember how I did things, but mm-hmm. also it was important to me that if I can put it in writing and make it understandable to others, then I probably understand it okay as well. And then same mm-hmm. thing with teaching, right? I, I, I've always thought that the teacher learns more than the student and you hear that, you hear that quite a bit, but uh, I think that's very, very true. Yeah, it, sounds, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it's not a cliche. You learn a lot by teaching. Yeah. 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 So we, we try to encourage our data schoolers to do as much of that as possible because it's only going to help their learning. Easier said than done, though. Mm-hmm. You got started in journalism before you got into data journalism, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, um, I mean, I studied journalism. But I, 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 did a, I have a BA in journalism and a master's okay. degree in design. I have a PhD, all, the, all these degrees. But yeah, I, I've always considered myself... A journalist, and and I, and I define journalism very broadly because, for example, the classes that I teach at the University of Miami right now are branded as journalism classes. But most okay. of my students, a majority of, our, of my students, are not are, are not journalist majors. Mm-hmm. They are data scientists, data scientists, statisticians, engineers, and I'm very upfront with them saying this is a journalism class. Right. But um, but. But you need to understand what I mean by journalism, which is that journalism to me is not a profession that requires a degree, a formal degree. It's a way to look into the world and a way to act in the in the world. And it's a craft. right? It's all those things at the same time. So, for instance, if you are a data scientist who likes to write a side blog in which you explain data science to the general public and you write mm-hmm. that blog uh, uh, truthfully, you know, with some you know, ethical standards, not, trying not to mislead people, but teaching those concepts in a language that the general public can understand, you're doing journalism. That's what journalism is, right? So many people who I know who don't think themselves to be journalists are actually acting as journalists. So it's an activity more than a, more than a profession. Yeah. But what is data journalism, though? So yeah. journalism is about kind of telling stories in a written form. Is yeah, data yeah. journalism just telling stories in picture form or chart no, form? No, 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 it is not. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not very keen on sort of like a, a putting things into buckets or defining things very precisely. So, again, I began my career as a regular journalist. It's only that by, by happenstance, I stumbled upon the world of visual communication Uh, I started my career as an infographics designer. So I was doing things such as creating, you know, 3D models of NASA spaceships. When NASA announced a new mission, I created an infographic explaining the mission, you know, drawing the planets, showing the path of the spaceship, doing a 3D model of that. But then eventually I transitioned to to data visualization in journalism, in the news. Uh, that was around 2010. And data visualization in the news, news visualization, is part of these broader world of data that we call data journalism. So what is data, data journalism? It's just, it consists of simply using data to do journalism. That's what it is. It's like if you <laughs> use data in any form to do investigative reporting, right, you're doing data journalism. So if you, sometimes the result of data journalism is a data visualization, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's not a data visualization. Sometimes it's just a written story, right? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, of you know the work of uh, I don't know Stuart Thompson at the at the New York Times he does investigations about the uh, extreme right uh, online and about misinformation online and he uses you know mm-hmm. he analyzes data from social media and stuff well that's data journalism even if what he ends up producing is not a data visualization he's still using data to conduct the activity the craft mm-hmm. of journalism so that's what data journalism means so data visualization is just a small a, a small portion of a much broader world 
Okay. So the work that the Financial Times does, like John Byrne Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. All the John, all the John designs graphics, right? Yeah. But he, yeah. he, behind the graphics, there is a lot of research. And, a right. lot, and he writes. He also writes, right? He doesn't just, yeah. unlike him, we could think about many, I mean, tons of other people who are working on these, working in this field. So that's a very common misconception when we yeah. see data journalism from the outside that it's all about graphics. Well, not really. Graphics are just the most visible part. Uh, of data journalism, but there are many people who do data journalism without graphics. I would encourage, by the way, listeners to watch the movie uh, Spotlight, uh, which yeah. won the Oscar uh, years ago. Great movie, yeah. It's a great movie. It's about an investigation of uh, sexual abuse uh, by priests in Boston, and it shows the work of the the the, the, the investigative team team at the time at the Boston Globe. That's that depicts data journalism. It's a it's a it's a movie about data journalism. So I, I but but it involves no graphics whatsoever, right? There are no right. visualizations there. True, but true. Okay, yeah. yeah. I guess because the work I do is almost exclusively data visualization, I I, I tend to blend the two when really I shouldn't. It's really just using data to support your journalism you sometimes right. includes support your journalism. Right. Yeah. yeah, make your journalism a little bit more perhaps rigorous or, or rigorous in a different way. You can be rigorous without using yeah. quantitative data, obviously, right? Um, okay. But yeah. Mm-hmm. You wrote the functional art followed by the truthful art followed by how charts lie. Mm-hmm. I see those kind of as a trilogy. Is that how you um, it was not intended. It was never intended. Actually, the trilogy, we could say that the trilogy is going to be closed by this book that I'm supposed to be finishing by the end of this year and published next year, The Art of Insight. And that will constitute the trilogy. How Chats Lie is simply a book that I wrote as a reaction to what I was seeing between 2015, 2016, 2017, out there in social media. I mean, they can be read in sequence, but they are independent from each other. Um uh, the the art of insight is is I think the one that will sort of like close up this trilogy about um, sort of like showing explain the way that I that I envision or that I understand a, a visualization. But it's not intended. I just write things that I feel that I need to write. That this is not there was not a plan at all. In okay. fact, okay. I I always write books without a plan. And so it's like I have a very broad idea of what I want to say and a very broad idea of what the structure of the book should be before I start writing it. But then at the end, the book ends up being something completely different. Okay. Um, you just let it fun. flow. Yeah. yeah, I just let it flow. Right? Um, sometimes that makes books a little bit more perhaps incoherent than they should. So mm-hmm. if, when I look back at, for example, the functional art, there are many things that I would have done differently in hindsight but you know it is what it is it was a it's a book that i needed to write at the time same yeah. th- for the truthful art which i would say that is my favorite book among the ones that i have written how chats lie it is what it is it's a reaction to a social and cultural trends that i was seeing and i thought that there was a need for a book that explained to the public that visualizations are not objective all right and teaching people mm-hmm. to pay more attention to graphs and maps that they were seeing in the media Right, to avoid misunderstandings. And then The Art of Inside is also a book that has its own its own personality. So, yeah, I always yeah. write in reaction to interests, cur- things that I feel curious about. Mm-hmm. On Twitter, I see sometimes repost or respond to people's charts because you can, you know, you see something wrong or that it's misleading. How do you, how do you sort of know, do you know instantly that they're misleading? Do you get suspicious of them? How do you go about kind of, you know, figuring out in your head or what's your sort of approach for knowing whether you should believe it or not? I just pay attention. So I, I just, you know, I, I, this is one of the messages in How Charts Lie, which by the way, is not a book about how to lie with charts. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not that charts lie per se. The, 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 even the title of the book is sort of like a, a, sort of like a little game with, with words. Uh, it's more about how we lie to ourselves with the charts that we see every day. And the way to lie to ourselves with charts is begins by not paying attention to charts, by assuming that a chart, uh, and when I say chart, by the way, I refer to graphs, maps, even mm-hmm. diagrams, etc., that, that depict uh, numbers and data, believing that that is, a, that is a picture, that that is an image, that you can just take a look at it and understand what you're seeing. And what I'm pushing is sort of like a very obvious idea. It's obvious, but it's not that obvious 
that, you know, visualizations need to be approached like writing or reading. You need right. to read them. You need to see what 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 the graphic shows, what is not showing, what is being what is being shown, what is being left out, where the data comes from, whether the data is well depicted and so on and so forth. So I just developed this sense of, you know, uh, sort of like a, 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 a perhaps a more mindful approach okay. uh, to chat reading. Stop and take a look at it and, you know, always be a little bit, suspicious right double guess yourself particularly when when you agree with the intended message of a chart that's when you need to police yourself the most <laughs> uh particularly with ideologically charged uh, uh, graphics right you need to develop that science how you do it well i don't know with practice but it all begins with paying attention sometimes yeah. you get things wrong i there are charts that i don't understand and then i need to look uh more in depth into them but you know but that's the way yeah. you do it yeah, there's not there's really not a formula for that. I guess a lot of that comes with experience then. You've, you've it comes you know, with experience, yeah, yeah. But what I mean is that there is not a systematic way. Even right. in, in right. even in how chats lie, I try to sort of like I try to organize the book in a sequence of things that you need to look into when reading a chart. It's really not a systematic approach. It's like, you know, uh, seeing how you read text, right? How is there a systematic approach to reading better? Well, not really, other than trying to read better and more attentively. That's what it mm-hmm. consists of, essentially. What have been some of the worst reactions you've had when you've called people out on things? Uh, I don't know, being called names and things like that in, <laughs> in social media. Yeah, I don't pay a lot of attention to, to yeah. that. I try, yeah. Whenever I call out, call out something, I, do, I try to be as constructive as possible. Um, uh, just because many of the mistakes or things that I see that I call out are things that I have done myself. Um, right. So I, right. I try to approach graphics in that way, with the exception perhaps of people who I think that are bad actors. In that case, right. I, I don't pull any punches. Um, yeah. And I don't think that anybody should pull any punches when we yeah. have strong evidence that someone is trying to you know, mislead other people in purpose, right? But more, right. more often than not, when we see a chart that is deceptive that is not the product of someone who's trying to lie to anyone it's usually the product of someone who doesn't know better and, right. and then we we can help we can help that people those people yeah when unless it's somebody that you know is being malicious kind of you know is the type of person that they are i guess that they're they're intentionally trying to mislead people i guess most people don't think they're misleading people when they when they present something they might retweet mm-hmm. something say, oh, this looks interesting and when you when you respond to those, I think people need to keep in mind that you're not attacking the person, you're mm-hmm. you're um, you're criticizing the work, and the, mm-hmm. you know. So I think people sometimes get too well, hung in, up in, in, mo- in most cases. In most cases, but there are cases in which I do attack the person. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for example, if you see someone who is who who claims not to be a racist, but yeah. sort of like uh, puts out a racist message. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. you attack the person because the assumptions of the person are racist, and therefore you're attacking the assumptions of that person. Same yeah. thing with uh, anti-LGBTQ um, uh, people now, nowadays. This is very, you know, it's very present in the news. I don't mind attacking the person. You are a you are a homophobic person. I right. don't mind saying that you are. You're putting out a homophobic message or a yeah. transphobic message. I have no problem saying that. And then yeah. you're mis- misusing data. To mislead the public, that's sort of like the second part of the yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's yeah, the they're they're double uh, double encoding, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, double encoding. <laughs> In your book, you have lots of great examples about misleading visualizations. What are the some you know the, the most egregious examples you've seen? The most egregious or the most interesting? Because those are two things, two completely different things. All right, so but most egregious are you know charts that are very easy to see the way that they are lying, right? The way that they are sort of like, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, and and I didn't include this in the book, but uh, because I wrote the book before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, we saw people, particularly at the beginning, comparing the mortality rates due to COVID-19 to the mortality rates for heart disease. Those things are not comparable. You cannot compare them because heart disease is not contagious and a pandemic is contagious. Therefore, the, the, bar, the bar charts that I was seeing were intrinsically misleading, right? That that's one of, was one of the most egregious examples of, of, of charts that unintendedly or intendedly uh, uh, were lying, right? 
But I, I think that the most interesting cases are the charts that sort of like that we misread um, in purpose. And the example that opens up the book, the example of the uh, former President Trump misusing a map of uh, electoral results, uh, the, the classical Coropleth map of who won where to make um, a case for his popular support. That's a very interesting example because I think that as ignorant as Trump is, because he's a very ignorant man, um, the mistake that he was making with that map is completely understandable because how to read those types of charts is rarely taught in schools. So you have a chart, the traditional Coropleth map, Republicans yeah. won here, Democrats won there, which was created with a particular intention to show who won where, right? That's what the map is for, and it works really well for that. And it ends up being misused or misinterpreted as a map that shows popular support. That's not what the map was intended to do. Is that the fault of the designer? No. Is that the fault of the map? No. Is that the fault of the reader? No. So whose fault it is? Nobody's, right? It's just a matter of just sort of like trying to increase graphical literacy among the among the general public. Those are the cases that interest me the most. Graphics that are not designed to mislead in purpose, but end up misleading because of a lack of knowledge, either on the part of the designer or on the part of the audience who consumes that graphic. That That's the core of the book, actually. Most of the examples that I have in the book are examples like that, not graphics that were designed to lie uh, in purpose. Yeah, I guess with Coropleth maps in, in that particular example, I guess it is, if, if you look at uh, landmass, then probably he was the winner, right? <laughs> because yeah. you know, the states that he won are huge and yeah, they're very- I, I, don't know, I, mean, I, I heard people, I have people criticizing that map saying, oh, but we need to come up with better ways to represent the data, whatever, whatever. Not not really. I mean, that the, that map is perfectly fine. If you know what it is trying to show, that map works, right? The problem is that you are sort of like misusing a map that is trying to show a specific message to infer a completely different message, right? So we are, you, are, you are essentially projecting on the map what you want to see, right? Which is, again, another thing that I call people's attention to uh, in the book. So How Chats Lie really, again, not a book about how people lie with charts. It's a book about how to be more attentive more knowledgeable, more careful. It's also a book about mindfulness, knowing you a little bit better, knowing what yeah. your biases are and trying to, you know, trying to control those biases as much as you can, although it's impossible to control it fully, but at least you can be mindful about those biases and try you can try to curb them at least partially. Great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the ex explaining the differences between those as well. In, in your books, in your tweets, uh, you deal with a lot of touchy subjects like health and politics, which we just, we just talked about. Um, how do you go about, let's say you're creating something or you're, you're analyzing the data. How do you remove bias? Uh, because you're going to have your personal opinions about those things. How do you remove your own bias so that you can look at the data objectively? Well, um, for me, objectivity, like anything else in life, is not a black and white issue, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like a, a spectrum, a, shade, a spectrum of shades of gray, right? You can be, and I explain the, all these in depth in, in, in The Truthful Art, in the second book, right? Things are not, things are usually not true or false, right? They are truer or falser, or more objective and less objective, right? So how to become more objective? Well, It's a very simple approach to that. Just let other people talk to other people, particularly people you know who are going yeah. to have a different approach to the numbers, a different approach to the data. You know, be open about that. At the end, you are going to be producing a piece that is going to be necessarily biased or subjective just because we are subjects, we are human beings, right? But you can reduce a little bit of the bias if you simply listen to, to, to what other people are saying. It's only that you need to curate let's say, the list of people, the, the, the people you listen to. You know, you need to make sure that the people you, you, you talk to are, you know, good actors, right? They're honest people, right? So, yeah, that, that would be the, 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 the way to do it. I guess that in a business context, it will, it will uh, involve um, talking to other teams, talking to other people internally in a company. In the world of journalism, it consists simply to show it, about showing your work to, 
friends, family, colleagues, and things like that, having re- having them read the graphic or whatever, and and then ask right. them questions about what they what they learn or what they disagree with, and then listen to those things openly. Do you have data quality checks built in there as well? So you go off and you do an analysis and you find data that you think supports the the story that you're writing. Do you make sure somebody else looks at that as well? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't, I usually don't do analysis myself. That that's the one thing that okay. I need to that I need to clarify. Um, uh, so for these days, for example, in the past in the past five or six years, I have barely done any journalistic work. Right? Most of the work that I have been doing as a consultant or as a as a freelancer, okay. besides academia, involves work a. Uh, in collaboration with scientists and researchers and experts, etc. So I don't do the analysis myself. Right? The data is already curated and verified for me. But obviously there are checks and balances in, in that part of the in that part of the job, right? But I don't I don't do it myself. Okay. Okay. This is kind of a, a sidetracking a bit. You you made me think about business dashboards. When people are creating, let's say, some kind of KPI dashboard for a CEO or whatever, whatever level. They tend to want to focus on the things that are going wrong, not the things that are going right. Why do you think that is? Well, because we'll, we, I mean, why, why, why is this country so politically polarized? <laughs> Just we, we, we like conflict. We like yeah. conflict. Human beings are biased to, biased to try to identify conflict, you know, negative news, etc. We like that. Mm. It's not that we like them. Is that being aware of them unconsciously prepares us, prepares us to confront them, confront those mm-hmm. negative issues, and therefore we are biased to pay more attention to potential threats rather than things that are going well. Yeah. I think that is just related to human psychology, to normal human psychology, normal mm-hmm. human psychology. It seems like they like to more beat people with a stick than pat people on the back. Right? You yeah, know, but, you but, know, but I don't appreciation. I don't think that it is even related to that. It's just sort of like a, this unconscious, unconscious mental yeah. model that biases yeah. us to pay more attention to potential threats rather than to things that are going well. Well, something that is going well is non-significant, not in the statistical sense of the word, right? But it's a, something that it's going well. Therefore, just just let it be, right? But things that yeah. are potentially going to go negatively, that's a potential threat. Therefore, we are going to be biased to pay more attention to that just because we want to solve that potential threat. Yeah. I had a look through all of your speaking engagements. There's, it seems like there's thousands of them, uh, maybe not quite a thousand, but it, you have a lot of speaking engagements listed on your website. What do you enjoy the most about public speaking or going to these different types of events? Or about public, I'm, I'm not doing a lot of public speaking these days. So, so since the beginning of the pandemic, the amount of a public engagements that I'm doing has decreased quite a lot. I, lead a, I did a lot of public speaking up to 2020, yes. Um, going to places, presenting information, talking to people, etc. Um, I'm still doing some online engagements. I'm still going to places sometimes, but I have reduced significantly for different reasons, that type of engagement. And there are different reasons why I enjoy it and why I don't enjoy it. I enjoy it because in one way, uh, presenting information publicly is a way for you to see how people respond to ideas and to have those ideas challenged. So I usually joke that I'm sort of like a reverse, I, I'm not so, I don't know whether this would be the right term, but sort of like I work in reverse when writing a book. Usually when you write a book, you first write the book, put the ideas out, and then you do sort of like a speaking tour after the book gets released. I do the opposite. I do the speaking tour before I write the book. You get the ideas because, for your book. Exactly, I, exactly. You sort of like sharpen your ideas, test your ideas, Get feedback, feedback on the ideas before you put yeah. them in, I mean, to, into writing. So that's one of the things that I did with Hot Chats Live, for example. I did a one-year-long, sort of like very long tour in like 40, right. 50 places. Did a lot of talks about that. And then those ideas ended up being um, a, sort of like uh, realized or reified in the, in, the, in the book. I have not done a, a lot of public speaking with the, with the latest book that I'm writing, The, the Art of Insight. But um, but I'm talking to people because the, the book that I'm writing is a series of conversations with people. That's what it is. So I'm sort right. of like just extract. It's a book about the people behind the visualizations, right? I'm okay. talking to like 20, 30 people um, trying to, you know, learn a little bit more about who they are, what their assumptions are, what their values right. are, motivations, right? 
So, um, so yeah, that, that's what I enjoyed about public speaking. But there are many things that I don't enjoy about public speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm a very solitary person. I like being at home with my children, doing my own thing, being alone. There's no greater pressure for me than not to have to talk to anyone in a single day <laughs> other than my kids. Uh, having time to write, to read, uh, to play tabletop games with my friends, uh, sometimes virtually, sometimes in person. Mm-hmm. I, I am a very quiet person, quite introverted. And public speaking is something that doesn't come naturally to me. Um, it requires a lot of effort on mm-hmm. my part, not in terms of preparation. I, don't, I barely prepare for my talks other than, other than creating this light deck, but it requires a lot of mental energy. After delivering a talk or doing a, a workshop, I am mentally exhausted. Yeah. Uh, and that takes away energy that I would rather invest in other things like taking care of my family or, or doing things that I enjoy, like reading, you know, um, working mm-hmm. on things, etc. So that's one of the reasons I have reduced public speaking so much is because right. I feel the need. That the priorities change as well. Yeah. 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 Your topics look very diverse. Uh, you know, they're, they're all related, but also they're, the titles are quite different. Let me put it that way. Obviously, I haven't listened to all of them. How do you decide on a topic for a conference? Is it usually the conference says, hey, would you like to talk about this topic? Or do they just ask? No, it's usually, yeah, I don't, I don't usually take topics. I just propose my, so whatever, is in, whatever interests me at the moment. That, okay. That's how I decide on topics. <laughs> whatever it is that I'm working on at the moment, that's what I, that's what I speak about. Um, uh, as you said, I mean, uh, up to this point, uh, I've been talking about matters related to data journalism, data visualizations and stuff. But eventually I may start, uh, start talking about matters related to probabilistic thinking, which is something mm-hmm. that I'm really interested in, uh, how to teach the public, how to teach people to think more probabilistically rather than in binaries. Um, there are many people working on these, but I think that there is still an opportunity for more thinking about these, perhaps a task of translating the science in that in that field to a language that the general public can understand and in, into a language that people can find useful and actionable. I think that there's an opportunity in there. That's one of the ideas that are around my mind. But who knows? I'm also interested in ancient history. So I may okay. start doing things related to that, trying to find a way to combine my skills in design and data visualization with my interests in late antiquity, right? I may find a way to do that at some point. So whatever interests me at the moment. Mm. Yeah. So you've, you've been in this industry for, for quite a while now. Um, I, when did, when did you get started? You said 2000 and so in, in journalism, I, I started in infographics, doing infographics in 1997. So 25 okay. years ago, okay. uh, but data visualization per se like having the, the almost exclusive focus that I have right now on data visualization, that started around 2009 or 2010. Okay. More or less. okay. Yeah. How have things changed between then and now as far as maybe the way people communicate, um, what they're trying to achieve now versus then? I'm sure, of course, the tools and the proliferation of data. Yeah, the tools, the proliferation of data, the proliferation. Well, actually, my PhD dissertation is related to that, right? It's like how... Okay how uh, sort of like societal patterns um, affected the task of journalism, particularly when it came to graphics, news graphics, right? The wealth of data is obviously a factor that has changed a lot of things, the increasing availability of data. Although, uh, as, as Amanda Cox, who used to work for the graphics department at the New York Times, and now she yeah. works for USA Facts, used to say, the most interesting data sets are the ones that are not available online. <laughs> I think that that was the actual quote. That is completely yeah. But it's, it's, it's the fact, you know, that data is more is more available than ever. That has changed things quite a lot. Tools, as you say, when I began my career, finding the right tools was super hard because tools were expensive and difficult to access, yeah. difficult to use, etc. But also the availability of, you know, training materials and learning materials. Mm-hmm. About 25 years ago, there were barely any books that you could read about. YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? yeah sorry. There was no YouTube. There was no YouTube, right? There was no YouTube. There was no Coursera. There was no, yeah, there was no nothing. There was nothing. So you had a, and, and there were no books, right? Now there's a wealth of books that you can read about yeah. these are great introductions. You know, your own book, Makeover Monday, you know, call Newsbombers, storytelling with data, you know, I yeah. know Evergreen's books and, you know, I don't know. There's so, there's so much stuff that you can, that you can learn from. And even online courses, right? I launched a, 
a MOOC, um, a yeah. massive on, open online course back in 2014. Like I don't remember. Yeah, 14 or 15, yeah. I don't remember. And I did that just for, you know, let's see what happens, right? Maybe we will get yeah. 200, 200 or 300 people signing up. And we ended up offering like six or seven editions of that course that were taking about more than 30,000 people. From, wow. from Yeah. And I still, whenever I go visit other countries to give a talk, I get approached by people saying, you know, I began my career thanks to that course. Oh, <laughs> I wow. said, all right, that, that's fantastic. That's wonderful, right? Yeah. So the wealth of information out there is also a factor that has changed things quite a lot. Mm -hmm. It has sort of like lower the barrier of entry for people to get into this field. I think that that is wonderful. Um, all for having uh, more books, more people doing graphics, more people making mistakes with those graphics and learning from those mistakes, yeah. sharing what they have learned online, creating blogs, having a conversation, engaging in. I, I love that. So the more, as solitary as I am, I am also a great, a, a great believer in community and yeah. nurturing those communities of people who work in the field, who talk to each other as peers, right? Rather than, than having a sort of like a vertical hierarchical relationship between experts. And I'm doing quotation right. air quotes in there, experts, because I don't believe in experts. It's like a hierarchical relationship between experts and users or practitioners. I am all for a more horizontal relationship. We are all on this together. We can all, all learn from each other. Uh, let's do it. Let's create that community. Yeah, it's very satisfying to me when when people approach me and and talk to me about how you know doing Makeover Monday, for example, week after week, help them get a promotion in their job or mm -hmm. help them realize this is the type of work I get to do. And your MOOC can do that at at like serious scale to help people mm -hmm. get into this. So yeah. I, I think people, people really need to realize. People are still seeing those videos up to this day because they are online. Right? They are, yeah. oh, obviously, they are, a bit, they are a little bit old, perhaps a little bit dated, right? Because the tools have changed. But, you know, the teachings the have not changed. There. Yeah. The that much. Yeah. So they are still yeah. useful. People still use them. Yeah, and I, I like picking data sets for Makeover Money that help educate people as well. I try to come up with kind of as, uh, like, hopefully current topics, but also, you know, um, topics... Um, you know, that, that are just good for people to understand a bit better. What's really funny is, is this week. Uh, so I don't know how much, you know, going on in the, in the economy in the UK, but the new government had decided to reduce the cap. On, on tax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, there was a data set around that I found around income inequality. And because the, the chart, the original chart that I saw was about how it's going to increase basically the income inequality in the UK, uh, which was very evident from the data. But I wanted to look at it, you know, data set I found is, okay, well, how's the UK compared to the rest of the world? And of course, about 15 minutes after I publish it, they backtrack on, on their, uh, yeah, <laughs> on their policy. Yeah. So yeah, I've been following that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And inevitable that something like that happens. I was like, Oh my God, you know, but still, I think it's a good topic for people to understanding income yeah. inequality. In general. Yeah, and it, it's part of, it's part of this societal conversation, right? And yeah. this conversation can help with that conversation. Yeah. We've been talking a bit about getting people started and the fundamentals and things like that. What do you think the best way is for people to learn about which charts to choose and when? Um, I mean, there are many resources for that, right? It's like there is the, 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 the visual vocabulary, for example, which is yeah. a resource that the Financial Times put out a while ago. The data visualization catalog. I think that... Um, and the Kirk has another one of those chart choosing websites yeah. or whatever, John Scovish. And, you know, many people have, even my own books contain sort of like advice on how to choose, how to choose right. charts. So um, there's a really good one um, at uh, chart.guide. I don't know if you've ever yeah, seen it. Yeah, I, 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 there are many out there. But yeah. at the end, at the end, what people need to be under, uh, need to understand is that those are not the end of the story. Those are the starting right. points. Because I, I fear that the danger with those types of websites is that, particularly among beginners, they take those things and they think that they that those are the rules that are set in stone, right? That if right. you need to compare something, you must use a bar graph. If you want to show these, you must. Well, it's, it doesn't work that way, right? right. <laughs> you certainly need to need to think about the purpose of a chart when you're designing it and and um, and then choose your your the types of graphics mm -hmm. accordingly but never assuming that these are sort of like um 
it's sort of, it's a law or whatever, right? Or it's a rule. I mean, these days I'm very into, you know, uh, trying to disabuse people from the notion that there are strict rules in data visualization. Of course, so, yeah. yeah. No, strict yeah. rule. It's visualization all right. is Visualization <laughs> is pretty much like writing, right? It's very much like writing. In writing, we have a grammar, we have a syntax, we have a set of symbols, but then the way in which we arrange all those elements is highly subjective. I mean, there are, there are many ways in which we can write better or write worse, right? Same in visualization. So what matters in visualization design is not applying rules that mm -hmm. are set in stone. What matters is the reasoning, right? Being able to develop a way for you to provide justified reasons to do something or not do something else. Mm -hmm. I am using this type of chart because traditionally this type of chart has been used for these. And we have some tentative preliminary evidence that this chart might be better for this particular purpose, right? Always yeah. willing to change your mind. So it's like, it's more about the reason. So again, those resources are super useful. I recommend them. Uh, but again, not uh, always warning people that that is not a straitjacket. That's just the beginning. It's just a starting point. And eventually you will develop as a designer a sense on, of when to depart from those, uh, from those resources, mm -hmm. from that advice. When I give people advice on how to approach building a dashboard, for example, or visualization, I like to tell them to put a title on your dashboard. You know, this is the topic of, but put it in the form of a question. You can always change it later, but that way um, I then advise them, like, if you put something in the dashboard that doesn't help answer that question, then you probably mm -hmm. don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's, a very, that's a very journalistic thought. <laughs> that's how journalists yeah. operate, right? It's like, yeah, I sometimes advise my students to write titles that are based on questions, but then everything that you put in the graphic needs to be related to the question somehow, right? right? Not all titles need to be questions, right? But, you know, questions are a good way yeah. to write a title. Yeah, I use that as, a, as, I recommend using that as a starting point so that at least yeah. you, you know, you can, you can always point? change the title later, but it helps with focus, I guess. What is the point, right? Exactly. I, I should yeah. call that the, so what? Right? Yeah. So what? Why is this important? Yeah. Why it matters, right? What, what should I discover from this data, right? Those questions are, can be transformed somehow into the title of a, any type of graphic. You mentioned so what. I also like to ask people compared to what mm -hmm. to have context in visualizations. How do you approach context as part of your visualizations? Well, I mean, it's not just compared to what, right? That's the old right. Tafti yeah. saying. Yeah. It's not even compared to what. It's compared to what, compared to whom, compared to where, compared yeah. to. It's like how I approach it, the same way that I approach anything. It's like context is king. The challenge is that. It is very easy to go a little bit overboard with context. So I'm yeah. having presented all these ideas to uh, communicators and to scientists. I have observed that communicators, by communicators, I mean journalists, people who come from a mm -hmm. communication background, they tend to oversimplify, to take away too much context from the stories. Okay. But we have the opposite problem among experts, data scientists, statisticians, scientists. They are so familiar with the data that they work with that they want to put everything, absolutely everything, in the chart. And they end up with charts that are unreadable to a general public, right? So I usually try to sort of like teach people how to find the middle ground, right? I usually quote, I have jokingly that quote that is commonly attributed to Albert Einstein saying, you know, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler, right? There's right. always a threshold in what, <laughs> I mean, he was referring to scientific theories, right? But Uh, it's a principle of parsimony, right? But it can be applied also to visualization. It's like yeah. there was always sort of like a range of possible levels of complexity that are appropriate. Mm -hmm. If you go below that, you are oversimplifying. If you go above that, you are overcomplicating. So right. how do you find the middle ground? Every story, every graphic is different. You need to make some, again, subjective choices. But you mm -hmm. always need to make those choices deliberately. And you need to be able to Explain those choices to other people if you are challenged. Why did you present this level of granularity or this level of complexity in your graphic? Well, I did it because... Hmm? Why did you present just the mode or the median? Well, because the mode or the median capture 
the reality of the underlying distribution, because the underlying distribution, most of the observations are clustered around the median. Therefore, the median is a good representation of the distribution. Right. That's a good reason. I don't want to overcomplicate the presentation. But if your distribution is very skewed or has a very high range or it is bimodal, that's a good reason to show more detail, because otherwise you are not presenting the story as it should be. That's mm -hmm. a subjective choice. It's very subjective. But it can be justified. You can reason about it. And I, I tend to stress this because people tend to believe that saying that things are subjective uh, means that I'm saying that everything is valid. No, that is not true. We need to assume that all our decisions are subjective. But if a decision is reasonable and justified, it's still subjective, but it is more acceptable than a decision that is just the product of a whim. The product mm -hmm. of a whimsical process, right? Of a, or a random random process. One of them is more valid than the other. One decision is more valid than the other. Hmm. When I think about simplicity and visualizations and not oversimplifying things, an approach I like to use is take things out of the visualization, continue to take things out. Maybe it's grid lines or axes or whatever it is. And once you get to a point where it takes away from the question you're trying to answer or the analysis you're trying to do, that's when you go backwards one step. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. your approach as well? Or what do yeah, you recommend? More or less. I think that we are all, we are all um, influenced by sort of like the minimalistic style um, yeah. popularized by Tuft in the 80s. However, I challenge that as well because even that is context dependent, even that is related, mm -hmm. to, related to context. So sometimes less is more, but sometimes less is less. Right. right. <laughs> it all depends. It all depends on the context. It all depends on the goals. And this is one of the areas that I want to challenge in the new book, perhaps indirectly uh, challenge what I call the Taftian consensus. Right. I don't think that it, that it is true. Uh, universally speaking, it might be true in, in the context of graphics that need to communicate quickly, rapidly, effectively, etc. In mm -hmm. the context of business analytics, for example, that type of approach may um, may be useful. But uh, so the, that approach can also be challenged even in that context, because sometimes the presence of a grid line uh, or grid lines in a graphic or the absence of those grid lines doesn't really affect either or the understandability of the graphic. Right. So therefore, it's neutral. If you right. include them or not, it's a matter of a subjective choice. Right. I don't include grid lines because I don't like grid lines, right. <laughs> which is what I challenge about the Tufty approach. Right. I, yeah. what I, what I, and when I say Tufty, it's not just Tufty. It's like that whole yeah. school of But things. he's very kind of dictatorial about he's the way that he, he believes. I don't yeah. like that. You know, I'm very anti-authoritarian. And yeah. what I came to believe, what I came to think, and I have my reasons for that, is that I dislike people who try to pass their aesthetic choices as if they were universal rules of design. Right. If a decision doesn't really doesn't really affect how understandable that graphic is, the choice as to what as to what to include or not to include is neutral. It's just your personal mm -hmm. opinion and your personal choice. You may have your reasons. I don't like it. Well, that's a valid reason, but I do. I do like it. Therefore, we can decide. We need to accept each other's decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, that is in the context of graphics again in scientific environments, you know, analytics environments, etc. But there are other ways to use visualization. Sometimes we use visualizations not to very accurately represent the data, right? We use visualizations to attract people's attention to a data set to make that data set more appealing, more beautiful, more interesting. I'm thinking about, for example, graphics such as uh, Ed Hawkins's. Um, a, a warming stripes graphic, yeah. which is a sort of like a heat map. That graphic is not particularly accurate, right? But it's beautiful. It's beautiful right. to look at. It's a graphic that is intended to start conversations. That's the goal, to begin a conversation about climate change, mm -hmm. not to let you see the data in all its accuracy. Therefore, yeah. that representation for that particular type of graphic, it's ornamental, but it's perfectly fine because yeah. it feels that way. Yeah, that's the type of thinking that I want to instill in people. Some type of thinking that is thinking that is much less about rules and much more about a pragmatic approach to visualization. Mm -hmm. Always thinking about purposes, about goals, about audiences, about your own subjective assumptions. Being clear when you're making a choice just because you like it, or when you're making a choice because you have some tentative evidence that it might work better. Right? It it it's. 
it, it, it seeds a lot of doubt in your mind also, this type of approach to visualization. I recently had a workshop for a big international non-governmental organization teaching data visualization. And one of the data scientists who attended the workshop uh, came to me after. It was like 16 hours of workshop. And he came back to me saying, thank you so much. I learned so much. Now I have many more doubts than I had before. Well, that's the goal. He had that's more good. doubts yeah. about yeah, that's good because you need to yeah. doubt yourself a little bit. And then again, creating that sort of like mental model about design that is more again more about reasoning and having mm-hmm. that conversation about good choices or, or more appropriate choices or, or less appropriate choices, that conversation with yourself and with others, right? Yeah. I think you mentioned Ed Hawkins. Um one of the most interesting weeks that I saw for Make Governmenti was his his visualization. That's the spirally one. Oh yeah, the animated spiral. Animated yeah. That data set only has two columns. It has, I believe, a month, and then the variance from I forget what mm-hmm. you mean. from a baseline. That, that's how yeah, climate science. That baseline. Yeah. And when I put that data set up, I was like, surely we're going to see just some line charts, and that's about it. And we saw hundreds of different visualizations. And it was, it was fascinating to me the different approaches people can take and still tell a similar story, right? So that goes back exactly, to there's no, there's exactly, no way to do it. Again, it's exactly like writing. If you yeah. tell people to write about something, you may end up with hundreds of different types of paragraphs structured in completely different ways, all of them achieving the same goal. If right. they achieve the same goal then they are all good, right? If they don't <laughs> achieve that goal, then they are not good. Why are you going to say that one is bad and the other one is better? They right. are just worse or better according to what you are trying to achieve. That's what mm-hmm. I what I call the pragmatic shift in data visualization. Being a little bit less stern in the advice that we give people, being a little bit more open-minded and being open to the idea that sometimes different types of graphics may be equally valid for the same story, right? Mm-hmm. That again, that doesn't mean that all of them are equally valid. All that I'm saying is that there may be sort of like an assortment, a bunch of graphics that may be equally good or equally appropriate for the data yeah. set. Yeah. Thinking back to when little Alberto got started in data journalism, young Alberto got started in data journalism, what advice would you give him if you had to go back? Well, that, that's another reason why I write my books, because I write my books sort of like keeping myself in mind like 10 or 15 years ago. What should I have known 10 or 15 years ago that I didn't know and that I should have known? And how would I have liked those things explained to myself, explained to me <laughs> back in the back in the day? So I don't know. Practice more, you know, um, put your workout, although I was working in journalism, obviously, so I, would put, I was putting my workout, or perhaps find a way to get more feedback, right, from other people. Because I, be, I began my career in print journalism, like newspapers. How do you get feedback? People can write you letters, obviously, but they usually don't do that because that requires an effort, mm-hmm. right? Nowadays, getting that feedback is easy, easy because you can just put it online, you know, join a community, uh, of visualization designers, for example, and then get feedback or put it in social media and see how people react. So that feedback is essential in the in the process of learning uh, that. Being a little bit less sure about my own opinions, about facts. Again, being mindful about what decisions are based just on a personal uh, opinion and what choices are based on you know, a careful assessment of what the uh, what the evidence out there is as to what is going to work or not, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that um, the older I get, the less opinionated I get. Or perhaps the more opinionated I get, I, I get, but the less sure I am about those, about those opinions. Yeah. If, uh, well, hold on one second, I lost my question there. Sorry about that. <laughs> How do you stay innovative? I don't care about that. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I don't care at all, at all. I mean, there's so much work to be done in just teaching the general public how to read existing charts that I don't care about being innovative. Perhaps okay. staying innovative in the sense of like that educational purpose, but uh, even that, I don't know. I still I'm old fashioned. I write books. I do right. courses. I teach classes. So I don't I don't care about. I think that we put too much value on innovation yeah. rather than on securing and, and 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 explaining what we already have. Mm-hmm. I'm not ruling out the need for innovation, though. I, it's great that we have people out there creating new tools, creating new ways to represent data, creating new technologies. I, I love all that. 
is that something that I'm not interested in? That's not what yeah. I do. Yeah. Well, the fundamentals are more important, I think, anyway, right? So we see sometimes people create really thing. You know, I've been I've been doing makeover money for over seven years now, and we see a lot of beauty over substance. Mm. And for me, I, I, think don't, really I don't think that there is a contradiction between those two things, a clear separation between one and the one and the others. What do you mean essentially is that they don't care that much about making the graphic understandable. Um, uh, they care more about creating a visual that is uh, not necessarily beautiful, but unique right. in some sense. But again, that all depends on context. I mean, it all depends okay. on what your purpose is. Right? If your yeah. purpose is to call attention to the data set, by all means, go, go crazy. Create something that is artistic, <laughs> generative art-like. I don't care. That's great if you bring yeah. attention to that, to that information. However, if your purpose is that people extract meaning from that data set, maybe you need to downplay that creative, creative part of the, of the graphic and focus a little bit more on the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. What we know that might work better or not to communicate those ideas, but there's always a trade-off, right? So there's yeah. always a balance between between yeah. that. How do you go about achieving that balance then? I just eyeball it. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, it, it depends. I mean, right? it, yeah, that, depends. That, that's a cliche. No, it depends. Well, yeah, it depends, but it depends on what. That's always well. It depends on audience. Depends on the type of data set. Depends on the purpose that I have in mind when designing the graphic. Uh, but then there, I know I don't follow a strict sort of like uh, rubric. I need to do this rather than that. Now I just I just do it. I mean, the, again, like writing. It's like how do you write books? Do you have a rubric to write a book? No, you just write it. You just write it. I mean, if you can, you test what you are writing with people to see how they respond. And same thing yeah. with visualization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that I see is schools don't teach people to be data literate. Why do you think we can educate the general public better? I don't think that the problem is data literacy, per se. Data, uh, literacy about data is just a small subset of a broader field that is not well taught, which is like simply scientific, scientific thinking, scientific literacy that involves mm-hmm. thinking about logic, probability, and also statistics. Right? Statistics is part of that. So this is some probability. Okay. This is are closely related, obviously. Um that is part of that broader that broader goal. Um, media literacy—it's all interrelated. You cannot you cannot separate one with the from from the other. It's like teaching people how to read graph read charts without teaching them a little bit about the underlying statistics. It's impossible. You need to teach them the underlying statistics before they can understand those statistics being visually uh, visually represented. Um, I think actually that. Perhaps I'm departing a little bit from from your question, but I think that this is an important point. In the past few years, I have involved in several conversations about the creation of courses on data literacy, scientific literacy, media literacy, how to teach people how to consume, become better consumers of media and how to identify, um, you know, good sources, reliable sources. That's all great. That's fantastic. But what we need to teach first is teach people to identify their own biases. We need to teach mindfulness. That's the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of that in How Charts Lie. I didn't make it overly explicit just because the book in theory is a book about charts. But at the end, it's a book about that type of mindfulness. How mm-hmm. do you uh, double check yourself? How do you double check your the, the opinions that start bubbling in your mind whenever you see something? How policing yourself when you feel that you're creating an opinion that is not based on the available facts. That's all about understanding our minds a little bit better. So any course related to scientific literacy, better thinking, better reasoning, needs to begin not by teaching people how to check others. It begins by teaching people how to check themselves. So teaching them a little bit about cognitive psychology, the psychology of uh, cognitive biases. And again, not, not teaching them how to identify those biases in others but to be mindful enough to uh, trying to identify them in yourself. Okay. Last question for you. What advice do you have for people that are interested in a career in data journalism? Just do it. <laughs> Just begin working <laughs> in it. It's not that it's hard. It's like, not, no, right? Get, get, a, get a topic that you're interested in. Try to find data related to that topic. Try to find experts that you can consult just to double check that your assumptions about the data are correct. And start producing it. Start writing about it. Start making graphics about it. Your first graphics are going to be terrible, but that's fine. Actually, terrible, bad or good, again, it's context-dependent. 
your right. first graphic is going to be terrible in comparison to the graphics that you're going to produce exactly, 10 years right. from now. Right. But they are great for At what you are doing. For what you knew, right? right. For what right. you knew, right? So right. just start working, start making it, get some books about the field, read them, uh, take some courses, and but then start practicing, putting your work out, getting some constructive feedback uh, about it, adjust and keep keep making. We human beings learn by making, by doing things. Yeah. Great. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with Alberto, all of his contact information is in the show notes. So have a look there. Be sure to tune in next week. My guest is Tableau Visionary and head coach of the Data School New York, Ann Jackson. If you don't know who she is, she's an absolute legend and a complete genius. Blows my mind every time I see some of the stuff that she creates. I don't, I don't know how her brain works, and hopefully I can, I can dissect that a bit and steal some of it for, for my own work. Um, thanks very much for joining me today, Alberto. If anybody, uh, if you enjoyed this, please give it a like on YouTube. Please subscribe. And uh, this will be up on all the podcasting platforms shortly. So uh, please subscribe there as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Good to see you again. Okay, you too.